when we were building that first building uh, for Frisco Bible Church, I sat in a fascinating meeting uh, in, in, the old, in the old city of Frisco offices, in the, in the old bank on Main Street. The city planner and I sat and discussed water. And I was flabbergasted to learn something. I was, I was amazed to learn that we could not bring city water down to our property, even with us paying for it. Even with us paying all the costs, we were not allowed to bring Frisco water to the new church site. Why, you ask? Thank you. I asked the same thing as well. Turns out, turns out that our property was still under contract to an entity called Lebanon Water Company. How many of you have any familiarity at all with the old Lebanon city of Lebanon, Texas? Okay, a few of you have heard of it. There's a street called Lebanon. That's what it's named for. There was a settlement there. It's actually older than Frisco, and at one point, uh, for a number of years, it was larger than Frisco, but it's now defunct and absorbed into the greater city of Frisco. Well, that little Lebanon, Texas, had its own water company. Lebanon Water was the name of their company. They dug a bunch of deep wells, really sweet, deep water, and then they sold it to all the unincorporated farms around this area. Apparently, the original owner of our property had a Lebanon water contract which carried over to us. And until that contract was properly canceled, we could not start a new relationship with Frisco Water. The old Lebanon water contract was the contract still in force. So, you know what I had to do? I had to get legal proof that Lebanon Water Company no longer existed, right? That's what I had to do. Only then could I show legally that our contract with Lebanon was ended. Isn't that wild? Think of that when you have a drink of water from the fountain here today. Also think of that when you open your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. Because that experience is very similar to what Paul's using as his illustration in Galatians chapter 3. Turn there in your Bible, Galatians 3, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then Galatians. Go to chapter 3 and let's read verses 15 through 18. 15 through 18. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and canceled the promise. Talking about the Abrahamic covenant. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. You'll see in our notes, open your bulletin you got when you came in. There's notes there in the middle on the left side. You'll see that this thought section exposes the primacy of God's faith covenant through Abraham. The prior covenant of God made through Abraham is still the contract in force. It supersedes any later contracts. Two ideas here, two big ideas support Paul's point. First, the promise is passed on in Jesus. Look up here. Look at how Matthew begins his gospel. Very first words of your New Testament say this. The historical record of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of whom, everybody? Abraham, the son of Abraham. Now, now, why start off that way? Okay, you're Matthew. You're wanting to introduce people to Messiah Jesus. Why do you start writing like that? Because Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He continues the Abrahamic promise, just like our Frisco land contract continued our covenant with Lebanon water. The, the only difference is God isn't dead, right? Unlike humans and their companies, death cannot hold the triune God. Therefore, his covenant continues forever. So, so where do we fit into that? Quickly, slide down in your text to verses 27 through 29. We'll come back to them. There's, there's much more to learn here. But we should quickly look ahead to where Paul again picks up this idea of Jesus as Abraham's seed. Go to verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. 
There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Look at that. Look at it. Believers in Messiah Jesus are in Christ Jesus. We're baptized into Christ. We have put on Christ. We are sons of God in Christ, therefore partakers of the promises to Abraham. The promises of God flow to the Messiah, and since we believe in Jesus Christ, we are in the Messiah, and therefore we are partakers with Christ of the promises made to Abraham. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. The promise continues through Jesus. Second point, the promise is covenantal. That's the second big idea in this section. You see, God made a covenant with Abraham. It was unconditional. It is ever in force. Unlike the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic promise is, is unilateral. It depends only on God. It does not depend on God and people. As we saw last time, it's a covenant that is based on faith alone. Look, here's an easy way to tell the difference. Okay? Easy way to tell the difference. In the Mosaic covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, right, they had these regular barbecues. Right? It, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a big part of the Mosaic laws. You had to have these sacrifices, regular barbecues all the time. And at the barbecue, what the priest, that's what we would call, we'd call it a barbecue, right? Okay, at the sacrifice, the priest would take the blood of the animal and he would, he would sanctify the people by sprinkling the blood on the people. And then he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the altar as well. And by doing this, he was showing that this is a two-way relationship. This depends on God, the altar, and on people. Each one has to go through the blood, right? But in Abraham's covenant, do you know this story? In Abraham's covenant, when he's making his covenant with God, God's made his covenant with Abraham, God's glory appears and only God's glory passes through the blood. Abram did not go into the blood. God alone walked through the blood in order to forge a relationship with Abraham. Thus, God's promises to Abraham are unilateral. They depend on God alone. And that's how Jesus continues the promise given to Abraham. He alone died on the cross. Jesus alone walked through the blood in order to forge a relationship with me and with you. The Mosaic law is good. It is purposeful, as we will see. But the Abrahamic relationship, that is primary. So, if the Abrahamic covenant is primary, then why even have the Mosaic law code, right? Why does he even have that lever? Why even have the Mosaic law code? That was, that was for you. Did you like that? Good. All right. Uh, that's exactly the question Paul asks and answers in the next section. Look at, look at chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Let's read this and learn the purposes of Moses' law covenant. Chapter 3, verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the Scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law, then, was our guardian until Christ, so we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When the engineers brought the, uh, the city water down to this land, they were very surprised to find that there was still fresh water in the old Lebanon water line. It was, it was amazing. I, I was here the day they dug up the old line. You know what I did? I went and sat on my car out there on what was going to be Eldorado Parkway. I went and sat on my car. And I, and I looked at that old water line, and I looked at our property, and I thought about all the years that that water nourished this property. And I thought about all the corn and all the cotton 
and all the lives that were blessed because of what that water did on this land. Don't get me wrong, I didn't want that line anymore. It wasn't good anymore. The, not only was the company defunct, the old water line wasn't nearly big enough for what our purposes were, but it had, it had served a great purpose. In a similar fashion, look what Paul's doing. He's sitting here looking at the old line of the Mosaic Law, and he's thinking about all the good that God did through that and all the good that God continues to do through it. Remember his point earlier in the letter. The Old Testament law is still Scripture, but it is fulfilled by Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham. That's why Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what, everybody? Fulfill. I came to fulfill it, right? Let's expand the discussion a bit. Let's discuss God's fulfilled Old Testament law and all of its purposes. Actually, first thing we need to know is what the law does not do. It does not save anyone. We need to first deal with what is not a purpose of the Mosaic Code. The Old Testament law was never intended to justify anyone before God. That's why the, the parallel passage in Romans 3, uh, Romans 3 is a parallel passage to Galatians 3, okay? Here's what the parallel passage says. For we conclude a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, our messianic brother, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, put it brilliantly. L look at how, how Dr. Fruchtenbaum put it. Arnold said, let me emphasize that at no time is it taught in Scripture that the Mosaic Law was the means of salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. The content of faith has changed from age to age. Exactly what one had to believe to be saved was different from age to age, depending on the progressive revelation, that which God revealed over time. But the means of salvation never changes. The Mosaic Law was never intended to give a way of salvation. It was given to a people, think about it this way, it was given to a people already redeemed from Egypt, not in order to redeem them, close quote. Okay, with that negative out of the way, let's get to the positives. Here's what the Bible says Moses' law does accomplish. First thing accomplished by Moses' covenant law that God gave him is it reveals God's holiness. The law shows the standard of perfection necessary for a proper relationship with God. Yet, guess what word appears over 200 times in the Old Testament law? Holy. Holy. God is holy. By the way, the law goes on to show that God cannot remain holy if unclean people and unclean things are countenanced by him. So the law shows that those people and things must be changed. They must be made holy, made perfect, or else God himself would become unclean. Second thing the law does, it provided a rule of conduct for Old Testament saints. The, the Hebrews were blessed with this most amazing thing, a clear, written, unchanging law code. I, I, know, I know that a bunch of people studying with me are overwhelmed with laws. I get your letters. I get letters from China and Iran and England and America. And, and you mentioned fairly regularly, you mentioned that you were bothered by all of the laws that press down on you uh, in your daily life. While I understand your frustration... Please imagine the opposite problem that was faced by most ancient peoples. They never knew what the law was. Think about it. Put yourself in an ancient context. On a daily basis, the king or the military leader could just change the rules on you with no warning. By the way, actually, now that I think about it, that's what bothers a lot of you too, isn't it? Uh, the, uh, the capriciousness was awful. But Moses' law, Moses' law was a remarkable change in that capricious world. God's code of conduct was literally written in stone, Right? When you get to all those passages in the Old Testament where it says they made an altar and then they covered it in plaster and they inscribed the law on the plaster, you know what? Why, why, why did they do that? So everybody could see this doesn't change. 
Kings change, cultures change, the word of the, of the Lord endures forever. In fact, the Jews became the world's first totally literate society. They became the first people in history to practice compulsory education because everyone needed to be able to read the wonderful gift of God's clear law. Why, why even give the law? Because it shows God's holiness. It provided a clear rule of law for Old Testament saints. Third reason, to keep the Jews a distinct people. A distinct people. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 6 says it this way. For you, talking to the Hebrews, you're a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Jews were expected to bless the world. They ultimately would bless the world through Messiah Jesus. That's why it was so important for the Jews to have a unique identity. That's why when you're reading the Old Testament, you have all those long genealogical lists. That's why those matter, because the Hebrews were a distinct people, chosen by God, not because of anything special in them. In fact, the, the text indicates it's the exact opposite. It's because of God's grace. Fourth thing the law did. It provided Israel with opportunities for individual and corporate worship. You know, a whole lot of the law concerns worship, from the tabernacle to the sacrifices to the joy of thanksgiving. Just read Exodus. Read Leviticus. You'll see how much the law emphasizes worship. It's really all about worship. Fifth blessing of the Mosaic Code. It was given to reveal sin. The law reveals exactly what sin is. Go, go back to our parallel passage again. Um, Romans chapter 3, God puts it this way. Look, verse 20. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Warren Wearsby has a fantastic summary. I put this on the right side of our notes. Look at the right side of your notes from uh, Wearsby's book, Be Free. He says, the law is holy, just, and good. But we are unholy, unjust, and bad. The law does not make us sinners. It reveals to us that we already are sinners. The law is a mirror that helps us see our dirty faces. But you do not wash your face with the mirror. Close quote. The law is given to reveal what we are. It was never intended to fix the problem. That was reserved for Messiah, the seed of Abraham's promise. Sixth blessing of the law. And this, this one's strange, but it's true. Sixth blessing of the law. The law isn't given to make a person sin more. True story. First Corinthians talks about this. Romans talks about this. The law is given to make a person sin more. Let me, let me, just, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever once thought about jumping over that barbed wire fence that is just outside this door to the east of this property and running out in the field with all of the steers out there. Um, some of you probably have. Raise your hand if you've thought about how fun it would be to go play in the cow paddies, hopefully when the bull's not in the pasture, to go out in the field. Okay, maybe, maybe 5% of you. All right, okay, great. Not very many of you have thought of that, all right? But, but what if? What if I put up a bunch of big signs all on that fence that say, no trespassing, keep out! You aren't allowed in here. You tell me what happens then. Come on. You, oh, baby. Right? Come on, and your ugly, sinful soul, you know what you're thinking. Ricky right there is singing, I'll cut that fence. You can't keep me out of that field. Right? That's exactly, that's exactly what goes into your mind. Why? Why is that? Because the law exposes and expands your understanding of your sin nature. Look. You guys trust me as a leader. I'm humbled by that. Suppose I tell you this. Put it this way. Suppose I tell you right now not to scratch your nose, okay? No matter what you do, stop. Do not touch your nose. Don't touch that itch that you're feeling right now on the center of your face. It's killing you, isn't it? It's just killing you, right? You get the point. 
You wouldn't even have thought of touching your nose if I hadn't mentioned it, right? But now it utterly dominates your thinking, okay? That's the number six benefit of, go ahead, go ahead and scratch, scratch your nose now, you'll feel better. All right, great. Now, why does the Bible, why do theologians call that a benefit, listing itches to make people scratch more? Because then our real sin nature is exposed. Then we understand, then we understand just how badly we need the Lord how badly we need to scratch the itch that we can't reach. And that takes us to blessing number seven. The law is a tutor. It is a guardian to lead us to the Lord and Savior, Jesus. Desperate because of our inability to deal with our sin, we turn to Christ. Seventh purpose of the law. This is Paul's major point in Galatians chapter three. Uh, here, here's the important Greek term. Uh, take a look. Uh, Paidagogos is the key word, um, tutor or guardian. It's... it's um, it's a word that makes its way into English, uh, pedagogy, or the pedagogue is a rarely used English term. A pedagogue is someone who is appointed to watch over a child, especially to tutor a child in proper behavior. Th this was very important to the Greco-Roman thinkers in Galatia and elsewhere. The pedagogue safely oversaw a child's transition from childhood to adulthood. I, I think the New Living Translation did a really nice job rendering this text into modern English with that background in mind, okay? Look at the New Living Translation. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So how is the Mosaic Law our guardian? Listen, here's how it works. Our, our flesh, the, the sin nature in us as humans, uses the law as a base of operations, convincing itself of its own holiness. Here's what people do. We keep the rules and we believe that makes us holy. And doing so, we become ever and ever harder and harder of heart. In our own supposed little self-righteousness, keeping our own little code, we become hard-hearted. That's what happens. Martin Luther described it perfectly. Look, look what Luther wrote. He said, as long as the opinion of righteousness remains in a man, there abides also in him incomprehensible pride, presumption, security, hatred of God, contempt for his grace and mercy, ignorance of the promises and of Christ. By the way, let me just stop right there. I don't think I've ever read a sentence to you that is a better description of modern American culture. That is it right there. That is it. Every rant you see on Facebook this afternoon will come from that position right there. Self-righteousness that makes you incomprehensible to your own pride, presumption, security. I'm talking about other people, of course, not you. Um, <laughs> hatred, contempt for grace and mercy, ignorance of the promises and of Christ. L Luther, Luther goes on. The preaching of free remission of sins through Christ cannot enter into the heart of such a one. Neither can he feel or taste any savor thereof. For that adamant wall of presumption of righteousness resists it. Close quote. He is right. That is the bad news. He is right. Here's the good news. Listen, eventually, thankfully, every person who actually takes a look at real holiness, every person who dives into God's word eventually becomes overwhelmed with the 613 unkeepable commands of the Old Testament law. Eventually, it overwhelms us. You know what happens? Our eyes are opened to our own sins. Our eyes are open to how our hypocrisies keep piling up. When I'm up here, and I regularly, this happens regularly, I pray with you for people's eyes to be open. This is, this is greatly what I have in mind. 
Because at that point, when we see our hopelessness before God's law, when our self-righteousness is broken, then God gets to our heart. Luther goes on to note that the hopeful plan of God, which is to break people through the law. Look what Luther said. God says by the prophet Jeremiah, my word is a hammer breaking rocks, close quote. Thus, the law was a temporary mediatorial covenant between two parties. It was never intended to last forever. It was only to get us to where we could be broken, to where we could be broken and directly relate to God himself. The law can never make anyone holy, but it can fulfill that seventh purpose. It can direct us to grace, for we have a real relationship with the Father that makes us really holy. It's a little bit like Pudge Rodriguez when he was with the Texas Rangers. When, when Pudge was a young player, and by the way, he was a very young player when Texas, you, you, you know, he signed his first contract with the Texas Rangers when he was 15 years old. Yeah. You, you, they went to, they went to, scouts went to Puerto Rico, to his little town, uh, to, to Puerto Rico to, to watch this other kid. They were, they were there to see a kid who was a pitcher. And the scout had a radar gun, and he was amazed because he kept getting readings that were a lot higher than he'd been told this pitcher could pitch. He was getting readings up to 94 miles an hour, which is Pretty ridiculous for a, a league of 15-year-old kids, right? And then he watched his gun one time and realized it wasn't the pitcher's pitches that he was recording. It was the catcher when he was throwing the ball to second base. So he ignored the pitcher they went to see, and he walked up to this fat little kid uh, that everybody called Pudge, uh, Ivan Rodriguez, and he said, hey, you want to sign a major league contract? Pudge said, okay, he signed the contract, <laughs> and the rest is history. Those first few years, he needed those contracts. They were important. They protected him as a player, but... If any of you remember the story, as the years went on, the mediation of all the lawyers and all the agents and all the stuff, they were holding Pudge back. They were especially holding back his relationship with the owner of the club, who at the time was George W. Bush. One year, when their contract talks were stalling, Yvonne's mother told him, and I quote, she said, Yvonne, go speak directly to the man. You can't have a good relationship through third parties anymore. Close quote. That could come from Galatians chapter 3, folks. And by the way, it worked. Pudge talked directly to the owner. They signed the contract right there, and the Rangers were able to keep the game's most important player. The law is no longer needed because it successfully has brought us to the owner. We can't have a successful relationship through third parties anymore. Remember Genesis 15, Abraham's covenant directly with God? Re read it with me. Genesis 15, verse 6. Let's read it line by line all together. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord. And he, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. Thank you as righteousness. Abraham, unholy and sinful as all the rest of us, is saved by God's grace through faith. The Messiah would later come from Abraham and pay for his sins. Remember the rest of Genesis 15. One party walked through the blood in that covenant. That was a type of what Jesus would do for all of us. And by trusting him, we are made holy before God. By faith, no mediator. We are clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness. All God's people said, Look, look at these blessings. Look, look what we understand. We now understand the primacy of the Abrahamic faith covenant. We understand the purpose of the Mosaic law. Now let's get to the final idea of this section, the position of the believer. Go to verse 27 again. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. Now, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is owner of everything. 
Instead, he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, and heir through God. Amen? Amen. That is so beautiful. But to really get it, there is an important background that we must grasp, and it concerns Roman adoption. Look, child, there in, in chapter 4, is nepios, the Greek word nepios. This is a word that was only used of young children. In fact, it was used usually of children who were four years old or younger. Paul uses that word on purpose. Here's why. Every child in a Roman citizen home was under the complete rule of the pater familias, the, the father of the family. This would, have been this would have been celebrated in Galatia, political Galatia, where Paul is writing, because these people are only in their first generation of their Roman citizenship, of which they are very proud. They totally understood this idea. You see, the pater familias established servants to oversee each child's development. When the child is young, as soon as it's weaned, the child's given these people who are stewards, who, who are people that oversee guardians, tutors that oversee his education, uh, her athletics, social development, business development. All of this was overseen by various staff. Then, on a date set by the father, known only by the father, usually around 17 years of age, the pater familias held a coming-of-age ceremony where this child passed into adulthood. The only time it came earlier was if it was a, a daughter who was being married before age 17. That coming-of-age ceremony, get this, that coming-of-age ceremony was called adoption by the Romans. It's a little confusing for us, all right, because it, it usually involved one's biological children. Nevertheless, they were officially adopted as adults into the family. Now, with some regularity, Romans would also adopt people not genetically related to them. All right, now, I'll tell you something kind of sad. In the Roman Empire... It was incredibly rare. Almost never were abandoned children adopted. Children without homes were not adopted, except by one people group. There was one people group, especially in the second and third century, that became known for taking in abandoned children. Do you want to guess who they were? They were the Christians. It was astonishing to the world that they did that because nobody else had ever done that. What other Romans did was adopt slaves. Slaves were sometimes adopted. By the way, that's the key to the famous story, Ben-Hur. Many people today uh, know when you talk to people, they understand that Roman slaves could work to earn their freedom. It was a different slavery than what we are used to. However, very few people understand that it was accepted Roman law, it was accepted Roman practice to adopt slaves into your family. They became full members of the family. That was especially important for some very highly placed political families. Now, whether they began as slaves or as your biological kids, the adopted son, here's what he got. On his adoption ceremony, he got a brand new toga, beautiful new toga. Daughters got special jewelry. They got new jewelry, right? The newly adulted adoptees were then declared as legal heirs of their father's fortune. They were declared heirs of their father's family, permanently guaranteed their position, permanently guaranteed their inheritance in the family line. And the, the servants who had had the authority over these napios, the servants were officially stripped of their power over this child. That was part of the ceremony. They were stripped of their authority. By the way, the records we have indicate that the servants never seemed to mind. They, in fact, they, they were often leading cheers for the newly adopted child, and they, did not, they didn't resent losing their authority in that sphere at all. Some, sometimes, 
these newly adulted Romans, uh, I've read a number of cases where this happened, they kept their former masters around to be their advisors now in their life. And, and yet the new family adult was completely in charge. He was Lord over the servants who had been over him. A friend of mine wrote me about this Roman adoption. We were talking about how it fits in Galatians 4, but he wrote me this note. He said, perhaps we should revive this tradition. Our country appears to be in need of clarity on what it means to be an adult. We seem to be populated and governed by overage children. <clears throat> Good point. Of course, we certainly need to continue what so many of you have done. We need to adopt children who don't have a home and are in need of homes. But as important as those responses are, they're not the point of this text. The argument of this passage is that everyone who trusts in Jesus has a full position as a son of God. And the law, far from wanting to be master over him anymore, is leading the cheers saying, well done, so glad you're grown up. I love the old translation of verse 4. When the fullness of time came, is how my old Bible used to put it, fullness of time. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? It describes something that comes after a seemingly interminable wait, and then, and then looking back, the wait turns out to have been just exactly right. It's like, it's like waiting for Christmas, right? <laughs> or waiting to turn 16 so you can drive, or waiting for your wedding day. We were like slaves. We were under our tutor, the law, but now we are full adult members of God's family. The law brought us right up to the perfect point where we could enter into the covenant of grace, and we are now, and those who trust Jesus, we are adopted with full rights as sons of God, Jesus, who came in the fullness of time. Look what he does. He gives us a new toga. He clothes us in his righteousness. The Holy Spirit lives in us. You know what we do? We look the Father right in the eye, and we say, you are my Abba. I get to call you Daddy. I have a direct relationship with you, and it doesn't matter from which you came. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from. You are accepted as God's own heir. If you trust Jesus, you're in. In fact, you're so in him, look at the text, that you are Abraham's seed as well. You're part of the covenant of grace. Now, one thing I need to point out, sometimes verse 28 is misread. To, to pretend that physical human differences don't exist. Such an interpretation, it just doesn't make any sense. In fact, it would make the rest of the book nonsensical. We discussed this quite a lot in our pulpit team the last couple of weeks. I simply must share with you some of their excellent thoughts. Look what Martin McDonald wrote me. Martin said, Wayne, of course there are differences. And in Ephesians, uh, another book, Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul articulates some of them. But there and in Galatians 3, he shows that our worthiness, our value, does not come from pedigree, gender, social standing, orthopraxy, but simply through our faith in Christ and our being in Him. On this basis, we are unified and equal. Cindy Sharp reminded me of the beauty of weddings that include an adoption. I have performed a few such ceremonies, and I will tell you the impact is stunning. Here's what happens. Right after I pronounce the man and woman, husband and wife, then there are these children who are the children of one or the other of the spouses. And those children come forward and they are adopted. These kids who were outside of God's trinity, God's triune covenant of father, mother, and God. These kids are brought in by some adult who looks at them and says, you will now call me Abba. I am your daddy. Cindy wrote me and she said, there's something about that that leaves me speechless every time I think about it. It doesn't matter from whence you come. If you trust Jesus, you have undergone Romanesque adoption. You are now an heir of God the Father. 
He looks at you and says, you will call me daddy. Amen? Have you ever thought about why prince and princess stories are so appealing? You ever thought about that? Think, think especially about the ones where the prince or the princess doesn't know their true position, right? They don't really know who they are. Why, why does Disney's Tangled touch us so deeply? Or the Princess Diaries, or, or those wonderful books by Lord Alexander, the, the Pridane Chronicles, the kids' stories. Why, why do those move me so deeply? I think it's because deep down, we know that that's our story. We know that we are children of the one true king. We are so special to him that we inherit a firstborn son's share along with Jesus. Are you, are you familiar with this verse? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Read it with me, everybody together, line by line. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Sorry, so we are. I said it wrongly, didn't I? I memorized this in like two different translations as a kid, and so now I'm all goofed up. Um, this is a critically important. Have you, have you memorized this verse? G guys, this, this should be written on your forehead. This should be emblazoned in your heart. My mom thought this verse so important for us to understand life that after my brother and I became believers in Christ, she had this burned into a woodcut and hung right above the sink so that every night when we were washing dishes after dinner, we had to look at this verse and think about the truth of it. Say it with me again. Everybody, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Again, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Amen, amen. That brings us to a final thought. We must live out who we are. Heirs to the crown, do the dishes. For all of its glory, royalty has certain obligations. Guys, you are royal. You cannot live like a gutter snipe. We must represent our king and country at all times. We're free now. We are free to live right. We are free to serve with honor. Before, we were enslaved. Thinking on that, elicited this note from Fran Legband of our pulpit team. Here's what Fran wrote me. She said, there is such lovely self-restraint empowered only by the Holy Spirit that guards us in our royal freedoms. We're outwardly the freest of people, free to live, to die, to serve, to obey. Before Jesus, we were only free to sin and self-destruct. Close quote. We Christians are children of the king, so let's act like it. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer said it this way. It's a longish quote. I put part of it in your, in your notes. Um, here's what he says. To help us realize more adequately who and what, as children of God, we are and are called to be, here are some questions by which we do well to examine ourselves again and again. And here's his questions. Do I understand my adoption? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of my privilege as a child of God? Do I daily dwell on the love of God to me? Do I treat God as my Father in heaven, loving, honoring, obeying Him, seeking and welcoming His fellowship, trying in everything to please Him as a human parent would want His child to do? Have I, here's a great question. Have I learned the things that displease my Father? Do I make a point of avoiding them lest I grieve Him? Do I think of Jesus, my Savior and my Lord, as my brother too? Do I think daily how close He is to me, how completely He understands me, how much as my kinsman redeemer He cares for me? Do I look forward 
daily to that great family occasion when the children of God will finally gather in heaven before the throne of God, the Father, and of the Lamb, their brother, and their Lord. Have I felt the thrill of that hope? Do I love my Christian brothers with whom I live day by day? Am I, am I proud of my father and his family to which by his grace I belong? Here's a great question. Does the family likeness appear in me? If not, why not? Close quote. Those are great questions that help us live out who we are. Let's be, I tell you what, let's do this. Bow your heads and let's pray right now and let's begin asking those questions in a dialogue with the the Father who loves us. Bow your head with me and let's, let's go to God. Friend, the God of the universe loves you so much. All of you who trust Jesus Christ, he has made you heirs of the kingdom forever. So talk to him right now and I encourage you to just begin by thanking him for your adoption, for the privilege of being his child. Why don't you talk to God about the things you do that displease your father? He knows them. You need to clear the air. Confess the ways you have not honored and loved and obeyed him. Your self-righteousness, your greed, your selfishness, your ugliness, your petty heart, your division-seeking immaturity. And on and on and on. Thank God that in Jesus, your brother and Savior and Lord, that in Jesus a way is made for you. kinsman redeemer has rescued you thank God that you who could not ever save yourself are rescued by God's grace in Jesus Christ and, and why don't you talk to God about the, that question Packer asked about loving your Christian brethren your family as we enter a holiday season here in our culture, you and I are going to be around a lot of family, many of whom we can't stand. And, oh, I forgot this is recorded. I love all of my, no, and they are a blessing. But, Father, when I struggle with the people with whom I spend time, it exposes a lot more about me than them. And I pray that I will love I'm so blessed with so many family that I really enjoy and I wish I had more time with. And I pray I'll love them well. I pray I'll love the ones that I'm not as excited to see too. Because you love me. Speaking of love, listen. I have no doubt there are people sitting with me right now who are not believers in Jesus Christ. You are not adopted because you've never trusted Jesus as Savior right now. Everybody else is, I tell you what they're praying for right now. They're praying for you. You turn to God right now, and you engage with him. Confess the truth that you are not holy. The law exposes that. Your own spirit exposes it. You know it. God is holy, and you're not. 
and talk to God about the amazing truth that he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to walk through the blood to pay the price for your sin so that by trusting him you could have everlasting life adopted as a son of God inheritance fully as Jesus's clothed in his toga just tell him I receive that I believe in Jesus I trust him as my savior If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Act on it. Live out who you are as heir of the king. Very good. Thank you. Father, I pray for all of us that we will live out who we are. Thank you for these believers in Christ. Thank you for the offering we're about to take. I look up and I see these guys here for the offering. I pray that this is really where it starts for us. I pray that we give robustly because of how richly you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.